The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Mr. President. Love. Love. In just a minute, I'll slip something on. Don't trouble yourself. This is an affair of state. What I must tell you not only is grave, it's a secret. A secret? Have you ever heard of a young scientist named Durand Durand? Yes. Recently, while on a trip to the North Star, he vanished into the uncharted regions of Tau City. But um, why is that a secret? Because Durand Durand is the inventor of the positronic ray. It's a, it's a weapon. Weapon? <laughs> why would anybody want to invent a weapon? How should I know? I mean, the universe has been pacified for centuries, sir. What we know of it. The trouble is we don't know anything about Tau City or its inhabitants. You mean they could still be living in a primitive state of neurotic irresponsibility? Precisely. And if they are, and if they have learned from this young scientist the unspeakable secret of the positronic ray, well, it may give them the power to shatter the loving union of the universe. But that could lead to... Archaic insecurity and... And war. You mean selfish competition and... I mean war. Bloody conflict between entire tribes. I don't believe it. <sighs> Neither do I. But we can't take the chance. Something must be done. Yes. And you are the girl who must do it. Why me? Barbarella, I have no armies or police. And I can't spare the presidential band. Here is something you may need. It's a weapon? For self-preservation. We borrowed it from the Museum of Conflict. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, July 5th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Today, we'll be continuing our theme of Left and Right begun on last week's show, and then segue back to our theme of the previous week when we talked about Donald Trump in the context of political labels and just how important and essential those labels actually are. Last week, we discussed how everyone is still getting it wrong on left and right, whereas the week before, we talked about how great a president Donald Trump is proving to be, along with making it clear that both Trump and his chief economic advisor are in favor of unrestricted free trade. You know, I have yet to hear any of our fourth estate even mention that fact, especially now that Canada and the other idiot nations of the world have launched their so-called trade war against Trump. On today's show, we'll be moving on from those specific stories to the next stage of left and right, in particular, how fascism was artificially placed on the right, and how all that relates to U.S. President Donald Trump and everything we know about politics today. So before we begin, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, 
Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right social media links and, of course, all of our archive broadcasts. Now, I wasn't really sure how to kick off this week's show until I looked at some of our feedback and responses to last week's show, both by email and on Facebook, and then I knew exactly what needed to be done. Clearly, people are starving for this clarity about left and right, and it showed in both the friendly tone and comments we received on this issue, not something we're used to getting, particularly on Facebook. Brian T. had an interesting comment that he posted, quote, One might also add that left and right could also be replaced with globalism and nationalism. The globalists, one would think, would allow more freedoms while the nationalists would restrict freedoms. Unfortunately, the opposite is true, since the globalists are actually less tolerant and put more restrictions on freedoms than the nationalists do. But people just aren't seeing that. Interesting. I wasn't seeing it either, Brian. A very great observation, and I think you got a few likes on the page on that one. Sean K. says, This makes way more sense than anything I've heard or read to date. And he adds five exclamation points to that. <laughs> and in chimes Julie A. with exactly and two exclamation points. Now, never got one like this before, a post like this. Deb A. Quote, Note, Communism and fascism are not opposites and both explicitly sit on the left. Nowhere on this scale is there a place for individual freedom or capitalism, despite beliefs that they might exist on some imaginary center. End quote. Now this was a direct quote from our own online posting of last week's show, and so I could see just how much Deb wanted people to focus on this very point, which is exactly what we'll be doing for the balance of our show today. And then, of course... There's our longtime listener, Trevor D., who just wrote a great show and added, quote, The political left and the political right are individually separate and distinct options on a political menu. The political left and the political right is not a political buffet. <laughs> well summarized, Trevor. And this came from Troy O., who left no comment on our Facebook, but posted a link instead, to which I responded, Thank you for reminding us about this 2012 commentary by Craig Biddle, which has been brought to our attention many times in the past. There are so many problems with this idea of left and right being distinguished in terms of differing degrees of force that space here does not allow us to properly address them. His is the very argument that has paved the way for anarchy and for the libertarian plagiarism of Ayn Rand's philosophy, about which she repeatedly expressed great frustration. So in order to do justice to this issue, and to you, tune in for our July 5th broadcast of Just Right, which will address each of the arguments in Mr. Biddle's case in detail and more. And of course, that's what we're doing today. Now, in the chart presented there, we had a left, middle, and right. And of course, you know, if you listen to last week's show, that we do not accept the concept that when we're talking left and right, that there's any kind of center or middle of the road. But here it is, left, middle, right. And under the left, they have rights violating ideologies and systems, and in brackets, extreme force. In the middle, they have rights violating ideologies and systems, and in brackets, degrees of force. And on the right, they have rights, ideologies, and system no force. So they have rights violating in both the left 
in the middle, which means there's no distinction even necessary there. But they call them ideologies. Uh, again, that's a whole other problem that we'll get to later. And then under a line, they have another set of left, middle, and right classifications. And on the left, they have pure communism, socialism, fascism, anarchy, theocracy, etc. In the middle, they have modern liberalism, progressivism, conservatism, etc. And on the right, they have capitalism, classical liberalism, constitutional republicanism. So, when I said there's so many things that are wrong with this <laughs> that I couldn't possibly do it in a Facebook post, here's the reason why. Let's begin with the title of the chart, titled, The Political Spectrum Essentialized. Well, this is not a political spectrum. There's no such thing as we've argued on past programs. The categories listed under each column, left, middle, and right, are not essential distinctions. Some are secondary, some are consequential, while others are irrelevant or just mere side observations. Now, in terms of force, quote-unquote, the objectivist standards' essential distinctions range from extreme force on the left to degrees of force in the middle to no force on the right. Now, this is essentially the same error being made regarding having a middle of the, of the road or center on the left and right polarity that we were talking about before. Here are some essential points on the whole idea of degrees of force. In politics, degrees of force, quote-unquote, is an out-and-out -out contradiction. But why does it sound so right and plausible? Well, because there is an acceptable way to use that term, and that is in physics. Because in physics, degrees of force, quote-unquote, is a very valid concept, because those degrees can be measured objectively. So, for example, we have names for the nature of the degrees in physics. Five pounds of air pressure in terms of pounds is half of ten pounds of pressure. We can actually measure the degrees of difference. So, in that sense, the idea of degrees of force is eminently valid and quite necessary. However, in politics and in governance, degrees of force take on an entirely different and very subjective meaning. Remember, whenever we discuss government and politics that determines the nature of that government, we are talking about force. And I cannot remind you too often that when we speak of governing, force is what is being governed. So what does it mean? What, what, what does this mean in terms of degrees of such force? Well, just as with the fact that there's no such thing as a political center between left and right, so too there's no such thing as degrees of force. You're either using force or you are not. There's no degree of it. And to be clear, the explicit announced threat of force is also force. It's just merely a pre-announced consequence of what will happen if the enforcer doesn't get his way, right? So that's still using force. But that's only part of the force problem in terms of left and right. Now, to say that the left represents extreme force and that the right represents no force is so wrong, it, it just can't be right. Each side, left and right, represents extreme force. Think about that. The difference between left and right depends on what that force is being used for, whether it is being used justly or unjustly. Is that force being used in the defense of life, liberty, and property or to violate life, liberty, and property. 
Now, in politics, the idea of degrees of force is not really about any objective degree at all. Political force, to be effective, must exceed the degree of resistance, another kind of force, by those against whom that force is being directed. Now, that force will continue to be increased by the state until the desired point of compliance has been achieved. And in all cases, an eventual point will be reached where the state must either kill or imprison a resistance that stands in the way of its objective. The countervailing force against the state might well be yet another state's force, which could lead to anything from trade prohibitions to war itself. Or it could be the free will of its own resisting citizens. And free will is the human factor that defies measurement in terms of degrees. The other thing that the author does in this case is that he places rights-violating ideologies and systems in the middle. But there's no such thing as one ideology that can sit in the middle that mixes two others. You know, you can't have one system that mixes incompatible political ideologies. In fact, we already acknowledge this reality that you can't mix the two poles when we say that ours is a mixed economy, right? I mean, it already implies more than a single entity or ideology, because otherwise, what's the mix about? If it's a single thing, there's no mix. And a mixed economy is just one that is drifting towards one polar opposite or the other and is never a stable form of government, ever. The chart also places progressivism in the middle when progressivism is completely on the left. And it also places liberalism and conservatism in the middle, which presents a problem all its own, and I'll address that shortly. And what about that pure communism, socialism, fascism, anarchy, and theocracy on the left? Are there impure versions? <laughs> is there some kind of middle-of-the-road communism as well? Now, this is not about semantics or nitpicking. It is essential and fundamental to our understanding of all political causes and consequences and to clear thinking and definitions. And what might seem to be a small or insignificant distinction to many will in fact over time result in something we might call the political butterfly effect. Now this is very important as well. To even have a right, one must have the right to use force in the defense of life, liberty, and property. That's what having a right means. Degrees of force is ideologically as meaningless as degrees of life and death or left and right. <laughs> it's the same thing. So this article by Craig Biddle, I think, perpetuates the whole problem. It does not solve it. Now, it was always a simple matter to determine that fascism and Nazism stood firmly on the left in philosophical terms, and we've been doing that since the very beginning of Just Right, and even earlier as it happens. But I was just as surprised as any person might be to have learned that fascism was consciously and purposely moved by the left, from the left to the right, when our guest Salim Mansour brought this to our attention on a past broadcast of Just Right. So have you ever wondered how that happened? Well, here's another account of that sordid history, as we will now hear in our focused edit on that theme, taken from an August 17, 2017 conversation between James Glazov and Dinesh D'Souza on the Glazov Gang. Remember, this occurred not too long after the whole Charlottesville scandal, which most people still do not in the slightest understand to this day. Welcome to the Glazov Gang. Tonight, our very special guest, Dinesh D'Souza, 
the number one New York Times bestselling author and author of the new book, The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. Dinesh, what an honor and a privilege to have you back on the Glazoff Gang. Jamie, it's always great. Good to be on the show. Fantastic. Dinesh, I don't know a book that's more timely. The Big Lie and what just happened in Charlottesville and the way the media's covering it. Let me let just let you start because The Big Lie is also the big lie about Charlottesville. So why don't you just begin? Yeah, Charlottesville has is almost a sort of gift to the left because it creates the perfect uh, tableau for them. In other words, the perfect narrative. On the one side, you have the, um, the, the, the Ku Klux Klan guys, you have the neo-Nazis, uh, some of them wearing Trump hats. Uh, on the other side, you've got the left valiantly fighting against these racists and fascists. Uh, and so this feeds the narrative of the left, which is that Trump is a fascist and that the Republican Party, the conservatives are, if you will, the party that it is either fascist or accommodates fascism. And the left is the heroic resistors of racism and fascism. Now, um, this is the, the race card and the fascism card rolled into one. And it is the uh, exact focus of the book, The Big Lie. With, and the, and my argument is that exactly this media narrative about Charlottesville is the big lie. It's the big lie in action. Um, and the big lie at its, at its core isn't even about Trump. It's simply the, the lie that fascism and Nazism are, are right-wing phenomena. What I demonstrate in the book, uh, ideologically, historically, uh, in terms of any meaningful senses of the term, fascism, Nazism are left-wing phenomena and um, and we are being subjected to a great distortion of what those things actually mean. Right now, Dinesh, something happened, like, you know, historically, you know, you document, you demonstrate this, this whole, uh, the Nazi roots of the left, and then at a certain moment around World War II, as you show, the left succeeded in burying its past, even everything about FDR and JFK's views and everything that they did. How did they succeed in this? Well, starting in the 1950s, the progressives uh, began to establish a dominant position in all the three big megaphones of our culture. And those are academia, the media, and then the whole entertainment industry, including Hollywood. Now think about it. If you have the control of those three megaphones, you can put out a whole bunch of big lies. And even if some guy in Peoria knows different, uh, there's not much he can do about it because he doesn't have a big enough megaphone to contradict you. So the left basically looks back at its own sordid history. And boy, is it a sordid history. You know, here's Woodrow Wilson, progressive icon who almost single-handedly revived the Ku Klux Klan. Here's FDR who was not only infatuated with Mussolini and sending members of his brain trust to fascist Italy, but FDR is also putting a Klansman on the Supreme, a former Klansman on the Supreme Court. Um, FDR is also cutting deals with racist Democrats in which he agrees, FDR agrees, to block anti-lynching legislation and to leave blacks out of New Deal programs. Here's JFK going to Nazi Germany in the 30s and coming back effusive with praise of Hitler, whom he calls a legend even as late as 1945. So my book is just dense with this kind of information. It's completely irrefutable. Not one fact in it has even been seriously questioned, let alone refuted. And so yet this is all the big treasure trove of evidence that the progressives go, we got to bury this stuff. There's no 
no way we're putting this in the textbooks. We can't afford to let young people find out about this. And so about the same time they go, let's figure out a way to take fascism from the left-wing column and move it over to the right-wing column. This will require some clever redefinition of fascism. We have to kind of get the socialism out of national socialism, for example. But I mean, this is one of the greatest acts of intellectual hijacking in the 20th century. And you're right, to a large degree, it worked. And that's why when I blow it up, all kinds of people and, and social media, they can't believe it. They, they think it's self-evidently ridiculous what I'm saying, even though what I'm saying is the actual historical truth. Thank you, Dinesh. You know, just another incredible fact you bring up that I, you know, I don't think Don Lemon and uh, Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper will ever discuss. You know, in my studies of, you know, the Soviet Union, the those totalitarian monstrosities of Hitler and Stalin, we know that Hitler and the Nazis learned from Lenin, learned from Stalin. They were inspired by the concentration camps, other forms and the ingredients of, of, of the death camps, concentration camps, etc. But I was very interested in your book. You show that Hitler and the Nazis also took their ideas from the Democrats on segregation. Yes, I uh, outlined three uh, lessons that Hitler learned either from American progressives or specifically from the Democratic Party. Uh, and you mentioned one, so I'll elaborate. When the Nazis got together to draft the Nuremberg Laws, these are the Nuremberg Laws in 1935, um, which um, outlawed uh, intermarriage between Jews and other Germans, which um, segregated Jews into ghettos, which involved state-sponsored discrimination against Jews and later confiscation of Jewish property. So the Nazis uh, were very excited. They thought that they were establishing the world's first racist state. They even had a stenographer present to record the meeting, which they thought had historic significance. And one of the Nazis who had happened to have studied in the United States kind of spoiled the picnic by saying, sorry guys, we can't create the world's first racist state because the Democratic Party in the American South has already done it. Uh, everything that we want to do, they've already done. We want to do um, uh, outlawing intermarriage, they have anti-miscegenation laws. We want to segregate, they already segregate. We want state-sponsored discrimination, uh, discrimination, they've been there. So all we need to do is take the democratic laws as a blueprint, essentially cross out the word black, write in the word Jew, and we're off to the races. And so the Nazis then sit around looking at the blueprints of the democratic laws and get into a sort of an intense debate about how these laws can simply be modified to create the Nuremberg Laws. So I knew that there were chilling, when I started the book, I knew that there were some chilling similarities uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, but I had no idea that the, the high-level Nazis are actually sitting around swapping and debating and using as a reference point for the Nuremberg Laws, the laws of the Democratic Party. But Dinesh, one very interesting fact um, that you discuss is that it turns out that when the Nazis were agonizing about racial identity and, and, and some of their own rules that they were going to make, that the left, the Democrats, were actually too racist for them. 
right? Well, this is almost, yeah, this is, I owe this, um, this observation to the Yale legal scholar James Whitman, uh, who discovered a very interesting sideline to this debate. The Nazis were basically considering the question of who is a Jew. And so they, they turned to the, um, to the Nazi who studied in America, and they said, well, how, how do they solve this? How do the Democrats deal with this issue since there's been intermarriage and intermixing? How do you, how do you peg a group? And so this guy uh, says, oh, the Americans, uh, Democrats have an excellent solution. It's called the one drop rule. Basically, if you have any discernible quantity of black blood, you're black. And the Nazis look at each other and they go, whoa, that's, that's way too much for us, man. We, we can't go along with that. In other words, as you say, they thought the, um, the Democrats were too racist for them. And in, in fact, the Nuremberg Laws took a much softer line. Uh, you had to have three Jewish grandparents to automatically qualify as Jewish under the Nuremberg Laws. Wow. Dinesh, name me a Democrat who has represented Democrats in admitting and apologizing for the racist history of the Democrats. This is the remarkable thing. At a time when the, the media and the left are pressing Trump to apologize for things that he never did, a history that is not his, and in fact for a Republican Party that's been the good guy uh, on this issue, uh, the Democratic Party, the party of, of slavery, uh, the party that invented the notion of slavery as a positive good, the party that uh, at the end of the Civil War opposed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, the party that blocked Reconstruction, the party that imposed segregation and Jim Crow. Think of it, every Jim Crow law in the South, every segregation law was passed by a Democratic legislature and signed by a Democratic governor. There's no exception to that rule. And the party that mounted opposition to the civil rights movement. The opposition to the civil rights movement did not come from the Republican Party, but from the Democratic Party. So this party, with this unbelievably sordid history, has never admitted it, never apologized for it, never taken responsibility, and never paid one penny in restitution. I think that being leftist means never having to say you're sorry. As author of The Big Lie, exposing the Nazi roots of the American left, I can sure understand why Dinesh D'Souza was being legally attacked by the political left in America. I noticed this article in the London Free Press on June 1st that, quote, Trump eyes pardon for Martha Stewart, read the headline, and in which writers Darlene Superville and Jonathan Lemire report, quote, President Donald Trump said Thursday he's considering pardoning lifestyle entrepreneur Martha Stewart, who served a stint in federal prison after being convicted of charges relating to, to a stock sale. Hours earlier, Trump said on Twitter that he will pardon conservative commentator and Obama critic Dinesh D'Souza, who pleaded guilty to campaign finance fraud. As he left Washington to fly to Texas, Trump tweeted, We'll be giving a full pardon to Dinesh D'Souza today. He was treated very unfairly by our government. And so too was Martha Stewart, in my opinion. And that was an issue I actually discussed publicly way back with Jim Chapman and Jeff Schlammer on Left, Right, and Center. Believe it or not, on March the 10th, 2004, Left, Right, and Center number 208. And you can tune into it anytime you wish. Now, there's still a couple of missing links that I haven't yet addressed. And that's mainly the, the labels liberals and conservatives. 
Now, you might also recall that on a past broadcast co-hosted by Paul McKeever, we both agreed that a conservative could be found on either the left or right as we define the left and right on this show. And similarly, I would argue that a liberal could also be found on either the left or right. So what about the liberal conservative who accepts or rejects ideas from both the left and right? Is he or she really in the middle somewhere? (laughs) No. He or she is either right on the ideas to be found there and wrong on the ideas to be found on the left. But the point to be made, at least as currently defined, is that both liberals and conservatives can be found just about anywhere on any description of a political spectrum or polarity. Liberals and conservatives are not ideologies. That's why they don't really belong on the left-right scale as such. They're people, individuals. It's a little bit more about attitude than it is about substance. You've heard the term, a liberal approach, a conservative approach. You can be liberal or conservative about a lot of things, including socialism and fascism, and freedom. (laughs) Some liberals and conservatives are confused, Some are not. The confused ones are in the middle. (laughs) The committed ones are on one side or the other, even though their philosophies might be at odds. Funny, I got a fascinating call last week from a gentleman who said you represented the Global Economic Party. He called me from Ottawa, and whose platform was based on the idea of business capitalism and government socialism. When I told him that was fascism, he just could not possibly accept that definition. Now, coming up next, our conversation now slides to how the myth of fascism on the right impacts President Donald Trump. On the other side of our bumper coming up as we return, we'll be hearing from Gad Sad in conversation with Candace Owens from their June 20th YouTube conversation, which I discovered quite by accident right after watching our own YouTube video that we posted featuring Gad Sad, host of The Sad Truth. And on this side of the bumper, once again from James Glazov and Dinesh D'Souza on the sad truth about America's Democratic Party. You document in your book that the Democratic left has an ideology that's identical with fascism. The economic policy of the Democratic Party right now is essentially classically fascist. And and what I mean by that is consider Obamacare. Obamacare isn't socialism because in socialist countries, they nationalize industry. They nationalize the banks, so they nationalize the healthcare uh, industry. Now, we have a private healthcare industry. We have private hospitals. We have private health insurance companies. But who tells them what to do? The government. Who sets prices? The government. Who decides eligibility? The government. So we have state-run capitalism, which is the classic definition of fascism. Uh, so, uh, So ideologically, economically, the fascist commitment to the centralized state, we have that in the Democratic Party. Look, in terms of some of these slanders, they really love to go with Trump about immigration. And, you know, you know, especially after his inauguration, there are all these people coming on the media, no one is safe, no immigrants are safe. Uh, my producer, Annie, that's uh, from a Sharia environment, I'm from Russia. Denise, you're also uh, an immigrant to, to my knowledge. Were you, are you afraid? Do you not feel safe as an immigrant? Expose for us this lie that Trump is somehow against immigration. Uh, Jamie, yeah, this is the height of absurdity. I'm um, a legal immigrant from India. My wife is from Venezuela. Neither of us feel unsafe in the slightest. 
Uh, here's the thing. I keep hearing about how Trump has made a racist attack on immigrants, just like Hitler. This is part of the whole fascist indictment of Trump. Well, number one, the distinction for Trump is not a racial one at all. It's between the legal and the illegal. Now, uh, remember that most legal immigrants who come to America now are not white. Uh, they don't come anymore from Europe so much. Uh, most immigrants today come from Asia, from Africa, from South America. Now, Trump has never said, I want more legal immigrants from Australia, Canada, and England, and fewer from India or Barbados. He's never said that. So Trump is not drawing a racial line at all. And if we want to pursue the Hitler comparison from the other side of the aisle, Hitler wasn't even talking about immigrants. The Jews weren't immigrants. They lived in Germany. They were German citizens. And so Hitler was making an internal division within Germany uh, between the, the sort of Nordic superior types, according to him, and the Jews who were the, the source of the problem. So this Trump-Hitler analogy collapses on both sides of the seesaw. Have you had a chance, as you mentioned Trump, have you had a chance, I think you've met Trump or his son or both? Well, I was actually with them both last night too. Okay. I'm, I'm, here. I'm at the Trump right now. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, yes, I just had breakfast with Don uh, Jr. And uh, I was with, I had dinner with Don Jr. last night and Trump spoke last night. Uh, I, I mean, I love this man. You just have, I, don't, I just wish people knew how funny he was right, and right. how likable. It's, it's bizarre to me, like after he spoke last night, we all looked at them and just like, how does the media not like him? We're never gonna get this person who is this warm, charismatic, hilarious. He's like bringing Evander Holyfield on stage. It's like, Evander, Evander, do you know Candace? Do you know Candace? You know, and um, it was just hilarious. He was recounting the Justin Trudeau story, you know, after they went and met. And it was the most hilarious story I've ever heard. He's like, so I meet with Justin and, and, and we're hugging and we're kissing and he loves me. The guy loves me. And he says, and then we leave the summit. He goes, and I get on the plane. I've got 27 TVs on the plane. Like the second he gets on the Air Force One, he's like, I open a closet, there's a TV. And here's this guy who's just hugging and kissing me, right? <laughs> and he says, we're not going to be pushed around by America. And it was the most hilarious story. And he's so likable and and warm. And I'm such a fan of him. And his family is amazing. Don Jr. is almost exactly like him. It's, it's interesting that he carries on the Don Trump, you know, Donald Trump's name because he's exactly like him and he spoke yesterday and they're, they're really funny and they're aware of what's going on. Um, and they just, they're, they're past the part where they, they're even bothered by all of these headlines. They're just good people that are going to keep fighting for this country. You know, I, uh, I think it was maybe on the Rubin Report, my last appearance where we were talking about Trump and Dave was asking me, you know, my thoughts on, you know, why is there such a, you know, the Trump derangement syndrome. And one of the answers that I provided was that I believe that many highbrow people and certainly academics, the, the world that I inhabit, really view Donald Trump as an attack on their most basic sense of aesthetics, right? Uh, uh, Barack Obama is tall, he's lean, he's majestic, he speaks with a beautiful voice, he speaks like a Southern Baptist minister. He's one of us, he's part of the ivory tower. The other guy sounds vulgar, brash, 
uh, overweight, he, right? He, so in a very superficial manner, he attacks sort of the aspirational sense of what it is to be in the ivory tower. And that's why I think they have this literal visceral disgust towards him, right? By the way, you're, you're also hitting at the nucleus of what the Never Trump movement was about. So you have these academic conservatives that think that this is what conservatism is and we're somehow better and it's the ivory tower effect and they, they're tremendously, so it's, it's not just the left. You see it, I, I've seen it on the right too. They, they have these academic types. For, for similar reasons? They, 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 similar reasons. Okay. This is the most conservative president that we've had during my lifetime, uh, you know, probably in, in your lifetime as well. I don't know if he's, he's arguably more conservative than, than Ronald Reagan was and you still have never Trumpers that are harping about the fact that he's tweeting. Who cares? Who cares if he's tweeting? You know, who cares? Is he getting the job done? Is, has anything bad happened? No, actually, you could argue only good things have happened. He said he had a big button on his desk, and now North Korea is denuclearizing, right? And you have people that still need to obsess over the aesthetics, like you just hit on. And these people drive me insane, and they and, and that's why I drive them insane, because there's a thousand things that people think that I should be now. Like, and I, I watch it happen. It's like I left the left because I didn't conform to what they wanted, but there's also this Puritan breed of conservatism where people think, oh, well, now that... You're on um, Fox News. You can't do this or say this. You can't go from hanging out with Donald Trump to Fox News to hang out with Kanye West. Yes, right. I can. Right. Oh, Candace, now that you're on Fox News, you have to say that you totally uh, disregard Paul Joseph Watson because he's the editor at large at um, Infowars. I love Paul Joseph Watson. He's been tremendously kind to me. I right? love your irreverence. Never change. Right? So, and, and these people want to put me in a box. Now would you like to say something against, you know, Infowars? Now would you like to say something against Trump? Now would you like to say something against Kanye? No. I, I'm a person that I, I like individuality. If you treat me well, I'll treat you well. I've always been like that. There's no person that can say I was really nice to Candace and she was awful to me. I, I, I respond but with kindness, by with more kindness to that person. So I, I refuse to be put into a box, and that makes people very uncomfortable. The amount of text messages that Charlie gets, like – control your girl and he's like the idea they think that I can control you and your ideas okay it's now that you're a conservative you have to be very careful when you talk about the me too movement that exploded last week right. I don't support right. I don't support the movement of course I support uh, sexual assault victims and people that are raped but as we spoke about earlier movements that are rooted in victimhood will always be hijacked and weaponized by the left so true so true <laughs> you're listening to just right broadcasting around the world and online it is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. And speaking of capitalism, before continuing, I have to comment that I do have one very serious criticism of a phrase that was used by Dinesh D'Souza. I agreed with, with his whole argument and everything he had to say. No problem there. But he said this, quote, State-run capitalism, which is the classic definition of fascism. Now, I think the word capitalism was inappropriately used here. And this is no small matter or nitpicking. It is essential to the entire epistemology of the very concept of capitalism. When Ayn Rand wrote her famous Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, she made the point that she was not making any argument for or against capitalism. She was merely defining it. 
basically writing a dictionary. And that was the entire purpose of her collection of essays from start to finish in that book. Her reasoning was this. She figured that, well, once you understand what the definition of capitalism truly is, how could anybody ever be against it? That was how simple she thought it was. But of course, that assumes the benevolence and goodwill on the part of all, you know, every, every human being. And that's not the way the world is, and it's certainly not what the left is about in the slightest. Above all, Rand insisted, it must be understood that capitalism, both in theory and practice, means that the government does not command the economy. The government does not interfere with pricing and, and, and with free exchange. Government is the objective referee only, not a player in the game, nor, by the way, a quote-unquote referee that picks the winners and losers. That's no longer a referee. That's a crony. So rather than say state-run capitalism, my preferred term would have been state-run enterprise or state-run business, which very much is more consistent with the overall theme and all the other definitions. I mean, state-run capitalism is really a contradiction in terms when properly understood. But here's the significance of this. Unless we define capitalism properly, then there will simply be no epistemological concept to even describe the condition of capitalism. And if you can't name it, you can't have it. Upon hearing Candace Owens say, who cares about Trump's tweets if he's getting the job done? You know, I was immediately reminded of an email that we received. It was blind copied to me, but very visibly copied to the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation here in Canada. The Globe and Mail, Andrew Scheer, leader of Canada's Federal Conservative Party, now sitting in opposition, and to the Post Media and to Kelly Leach in the Parliament of Canada. And it was written by someone named John, who did not give his last name, and it was directed to Tony Berman, who apparently had written an article in the Toronto Star. And it was called, How the History Books Will Remember This Bizarre and Dangerous Week in the Trump Era. And quote, I mean, this is exactly like the headlines I read daily in our own Pravda rag called the London Free Press. It also carries stories from the American leftist news media as well. But he writes, Tony Berman, I saw your article on the Star. It shows that you and the Star are not only extremely biased, but just as dishonest as CNN, CBC, MSNBC, and the rest of the lying media. You quoted nuclear experts multiple times without naming any. Are you using the same tactic that the lying media uses, anonymous sources? Who are your nuclear experts? You wrote the overwhelming consensus of nuclear experts is that Kim Jong-un clearly outmaneuvered the U.S. president. Did you conduct a poll? If so, please show us your poll methodology and specific results. Did you oversample Democrats like the way CNN and ABC did with their polls? And by the way, to every one of these comments and questions he's asking, he's offering a multitude of links where you can go right to the source and see what he's talking about. Like the dishonest CBC, you provide information from the Washington Post. CBC never tells their viewers that Washington Post likely created a lie about Trump mocking the reporter's disability. Have you ever told your readers of this likelihood? And then there's a whole bunch of links. And then he writes, Six months ago, Kim Jong-un was firing many more missiles and blowing up many more nuclear bombs than his father or grandfather. 
He built a missile that can reach North America, and he threatened to bomb the U.S. Everyone in the media was freaking out about the possibility of nuclear war. Now, Kim Jong-un is not firing any more missiles, is not blowing up nuclear bombs, is not threatening the U.S., stepped on South Korean soil, met the South Korean president twice, offered to meet Trump, and has done so since, offered to denuclearize. Kim Jong-un did things that were historic, as no other North Korean leader has done them. Japan and South Korea are elated and praise Trump for making these things happen. Trump should win the Nobel Peace Prize, says South Korea's moon, and of course he's a whole bunch of more links. South Korea and Japan profusely credits Trump for drastically improving the situation, so much so they want Trump to get the Nobel Peace Prize. But the dishonest, biased North American media, including you, writes John to the Toronto Star, will not even acknowledge the drastic improvement. Meanwhile, the Nobel Peace Prize went to Obama, who helped kill 40,000 Libyans, funded rebels to exasperate the Syrian war to get 500,000 killed, helped create ISIS, lied about ISIS and Muslims, did little to stop ISIS, which spread to 32 countries and killed thousands. No criticism from the lying media, just the sound of crickets. Obama and the media lied so much about Muslims that Muslims themselves created videos to tell them to stop lying. And then again, of course, more links. Based on your dishonest article, you make it sound like we're in a worse situation today than six months ago. How are you able to write your article with a straight face? Your talent to spin and lie is stunning. The biggest story since 2015 is not Trump or Hillary. It is the fake news media and how they've been lying every week since then. Regards, John shaking my head, quote, unquote. Wow. Well summarized, John, and thanks for including us on your list. You know, it's, and all of that is just a drop in the bucket of fake news, all emanating from the established news media. It's frightening. Never thought I'd live to see the day. Here again are Gad Sad and Candace Owens. Now, I, I think in one of your, uh, I guess, viral moments, uh, you sort of had this uh, little clip where you're talking uh, with, with some derision about the you know, victim mentality. And it's something that I've weighed in on, and I actually use it. Uh, I call it victimology poker. And I usually use my own victimology score, which usually outranks any black person's by a mile because, <laughs> they, because they usually have to go back to 300 years ago when their great ancestors you know, were being uh, abused and enslaved. I just have to talk about within my own lifetime when, I, when my family escaped execution in Lebanon. And so that usually is a, a game that they can't win and I use it to my advantage using their own calculus. But tell us a bit about uh, your disdain for this victimhood mentality. Well, so the best way to become victimized by society is to accept that you are a victim, right? And and this is what they this is the bill of goods or the bill of bads that have been sold to the black community that there's some power in recognizing yourself as a victim. It's why I adamantly am opposed to any group, any hashtag that is rooted in victimhood. Black Lives Matter, right? It's a perfect way to say because what are victims but emotional? 
right? It, it's, it's, and, and, and when you are emotional, you are out of control. It's the worst thing that you can be um, the, is emotional when making a decision. Um, and they know that. The left understands this expertly. So this is why they are obsessed with identity politics and breaking people out and this hierarchy of victimhood because they say, oh, you're a woman, so you're a victim. And that's how they can control you because they've just told you you're a victim and you think that there's something powerful in that when in fact it's the exact opposite. Right, they're going to to use your victimhood to enslave you to some ideology. Right, so I am adamantly opposed, and I've been a victim, you know, in my life before. You know, survived a hate crime as it was classified. But why do you put it in quotes? Because I just I think we we were constantly racing to label everything. And what happened to me? Some guys called and left me racist voicemails. Okay, the youngest person in the car was fourteen. Are we really going to say this kid was a racist, or was he just a, an asshole fourteen year old? But by the way, that here? that's called Tuesday morning for me in my childhood in Lebanon. Right, exactly, and, and, and people are obsessed with being a victim, and it's like, you know, you can teach people, before you try to label them, why don't you try to teach them and have a conversation? Why don't we try saying sorry? All of this old school stuff that I raised, I've said some pretty terrible things to my sisters, and, you know, growing up, and people are trying out mean. They're trying to see how it feels to be mean. So I like to just normalize the discussion. Like, are the words that were used against me racist? Yes, they were racist. Are the individuals at 14-year-old racists? No, they probably made a really stupid mistake and, and people should be allowed to do stupid things without having it be a stain on the rest of their lives. There has to be a more a more normalized phase of like apology and forgiveness, which this society does not know how to process and do. They need me to accept my status as a victim. And I don't feel that way and it feels better, by the way. Forgiving people feels better if, if you haven't tried it, right? When someone does something awful and they say sorry, forgive them. And, and they learn and they grow from it. You know, if somebody goes on and for the rest of their life, they're like that, okay, then you have a racist. What's your view? I, th I know that you're against the open borders policy as, as I am. Uh, enunciate that view for us and maybe link it to the current uh, you know uh, emotional hysteria with Trump is ushering children to guest chamber gas chambers oh my gosh I actually had a New York Times reporter asked me in the lobby yesterday like how do you how do you not see the comparisons between Trump and Hitler and I I, I think I scared her I was so angry yeah, <laughs> I was just like do you understand how sick and twisted what and I was like do you actually understand and she was like no no and I was like no I actually want you to look me in the eye and tell me, do you actually understand what Hitler did? Do you understand that he exterminated six million Jews? That the furnaces, when they when they couldn't hold enough people, he would line them up around a pit and shoot them in the back of your in the back of the head, and they would just push the bodies into a pit. I go now, look me in the face and tell me that that's what Trump is doing by telling people that they can't run into our country. It's unbelievable. By sending them back home, and she was speechless. And I, and I think she was she sensed my anger, and I, I I got through to her in a moment, and I was like, it's hysteria what you are doing, and what's the worst part of all is you're cheapening evil. You're making Hitler palatable, okay? That's the worst part of all. I grew up in a very Jewish community, and my friends who were Jewish had, um, on the coffee table, they had, uh, you know, historical Holocaust, and I just remember, like, the images are seared into my brain from a child of those, all of those um, uh, skeletons, and, and just seeing the pictures of the bones, and the fact that people are saying, because Trump is saying you can't come to this country illegally, that we're living through that, it pisses me off. It doesn't even, it's not even something that I, I want to talk about. It makes me want to shout and yell because it lets you know how privileged people are. 
that we just randomly pluck whatever we want from history and say we're living through it because we haven't lived through anything, okay? This is the most spoiled generation in the history of the world. When you talk about Americans today, and that's why it's the Black Lives Matter, you are so spoiled that you randomly pluck people's histories from our black history, stuff that our grandparents actually lived through, because it's fun for you. You're sitting here on a UCLA campus saying you're oppressed. You're well, well, I mean, again, to, to point to my personal history, right? We, we escaped Lebanon under imminent threat of execution. My parents returned to Lebanon, and then they were kidnapped by Fatah, the Palestinian terrorist group, and some really nasty things happened to them, but eventually they were freed. And so I always tell people that the, the cure to the malady that we see with these privileged idiots is to have them live in true hell holes, like right. the ones that I come from, like the ones that Ayan Hersey Ali comes from. Uh, this is when you truly appreciate the miracle called the West, the miracle called the United States. Are there wrong things in the United States? Of course. Is Are there individual racists who might do wrong things? Of course. I mean, could you literally have 350 million people who are all uh, Buddha? No. no. But, no. but as a system, is the United States uh, arguably the, the society that has freed the most people, that has created the most good ever? Uh, yes. But only someone who didn't go to Wellesley College, who was born in Lebanon like myself, who came here, who experienced the generosity of the West, can appreciate those things regrettably. I, I, look, I'm, I'm down for a swap. If Trump puts up a thing and says we can swap these brats who think America is awful right. and send them to the country that they think is, is, is should be idolized, great, swap. Well, that'll be our new immigration program. I'll, I'll be the first person to support it, okay? You want to take some of these brats who are saying America is awful and they don't understand that we've actually been the most generous country, that we have, we've taken the most immigrants, and things that this country has done, the freedoms that we have and that we're allowed for, and the fact that they come out of our education system, they have no appreciation for this country makes me sick and beyond anything imaginable is the idea that they are now correlating that to what pe what the Jewish people lived through during World War II is absolutely sickening and they should be called out every single time. They're spoiled brats and they know nothing. Amen. You know, I'd even go further than that. The spoiled brats know less than nothing. You know, Allah quote, it ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, but what they do know that just ain't so, end quote. I thought about it, you know, and, I, and after all, people who know nothing about something <laughs> will never act on that lack of knowledge, will they? What do they got to act on if they don't even know about it? But people who think they know something, whether that's true or false, that is actionable. And they will do so if motivated enough. You have to have knowledge before you can even act. So I think that's the more accurate appraisal, though it no way negates the know-nothing argument, since in either case the left knows nothing. But consider this. What if the left actually does, quote-unquote, know about these real histories and realities? Then they aren't know-nothings, are they? Then they're pure evil incarnate. And that is why evil, too, sits on the left along with Satan, who, as St. Lucifer, also sat on the left side of God. I'm, I'm just saying. I just love Gad Sad's term, victimology poker, when he cited that his own potential victimology wouldn't have to go back 300 years to American slavery. Yeah, tell me about it. Join the club. Regular listeners to this show will know that I, too, am in the position of playing the victimology poker game, should I wish to continually cite the fact that my own grandfather was murdered as a slave, yes, as a slave, by the Russians following World War II. 
that my own parents were born in Hungary under the explicit system of serfdom and state control, and on and on. I've only told these stories once on this show, and I think that was around the time that the Russians were moving in on the Ukraine, which was the area where my grandfather was quite purposely and consciously starved to death in a Russian labor camp. Yet there are leftists today who think that people like me and my parents and other white Europeans should be feeling guilty about what happened to the black community's ancestors centuries ago on this continent. And even that history has been grossly misrepresented. It's just lies upon lies upon lies. Candace Owens brought up a really interesting point about people who make racist comments. She says, why not just say sorry and let it go at that? And she pointed out how apologies are no longer accepted by society. And it just so happened I had an article sitting on my desk that I just clipped from the June 26th London Free Press out of the Washington Post, quote, Barr begs for forgiveness, reads the headline. And I quote, An interview Roseanne Barr gave to a celebrity rabbi in the days after her infamous Twitter rant was released Sunday showing a weeping Barr pleading for forgiveness and saying, I'm not a racist, I'm an idiot. Rabbi Shmoli Botek released the podcast interview, Barr's first since ABC cancelled her show Roseanne. I'm a lot of things, a loud mouth and all that stuff, Barr said, sobbing, but I'm not stupid for God's sakes. I never would have wittingly called any black person a monkey. I just wouldn't do that. I didn't do that. And people think that I did, and it just kills me. She did not know Jarrett is black, an assertion she has also made publicly. When ABC called me and said, what is the reason for your egregious racism? I said, oh my God, it is a form of racism, Barr said. I guess I didn't know she was black, and I'll cop to it, but I thought she was white. Barr added that many refused to accept her apology. I've made myself a hate magnet, she said, end quote. Personally, I don't know if Barr has jumped from the frying pan into the fire here. So it would have been okay if Jarrett was white? You know, I think her comment was inappropriate and lowbrow either way. But either way did not warrant her show being cancelled. That's ridiculous. I don't for a minute believe the show was cancelled because of her comment either, per se. Given the political climate of our entertainment industry today, I simply think it was because she previously made comments admitting she supported Donald Trump and that was her character on the show. I think that was her real crime. And underlying this, of course, is the notion that it's okay to insult anyone except a black person, which gives blacks some sort of immunity to criticism that would otherwise be acceptable with non-blacks. I mean, talk about not being treated equally. What if I simply charged that a particular black person was stupid or ignorant or acting like a primitive? I mean, I've said that about many people in my, time, in my lifetime. Is it only racist when my target is a black person? And if so then those who believe this, they're the real racists. Give it a break, all you politically correct racists crawling out of your leftist holes. You're driving me crazy. One last thing about the whole social element of left and right, you know? You know what social means to the left? It means a gun. You know what social means to the right? It means consent. So you can see the difference even on that level. And there's no compromise between the two. So whether we're talking about left and right, force or persuasion, the polarities always align the same way. There's no escaping what reality thrusts upon us. And always remember, when it comes to politics and government, 
force is what is being governed. And we'll leave you with that thought until you join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Who is he? He's a Russian pilot. His plane was forced down with engine trouble in a field about a half a mile from here. When we went to rescue him, he fought us like a maniac. It took eight men to tie him up. Did you tell him you were friends? Of course, but uh, for him, anybody who doesn't speak Russian is the enemy. Well, mon colonel, he's going to be your baby now. Thanks for leaving him on our doorstep. Au revoir, mes amis. Au revoir. All right, let's get him untied. Ow, he bit me! First person comes close, gets this. Oh, boy. Look, comrade, get this straight. All right, let's get him down on the tunnel. Come on! Yes! I will not go down there! Iggy, don't force me to make you see my point of view. Right, I see your point of view.